In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Sandy here. Welcome to this episode of Money Tales. Today, Cami and I talk with Ella Chase Highland. Ella is a sixth generation inheritor who can trace her roots back to the Mayflower. She also happens to be super competitive. Ella learned to ski at age two, started racing at age five, and ultimately became a nationally ranked downhill ski racer. Her dad was her coach and unfortunately experienced a debilitating skiing accident where he became paralyzed from the neck down. This proved to be an important lesson to Ella about what money can't buy and inspired her to live by the mantra, let's go do some living before we do some dying. Hi, this is Cami. You should also know that this competitive, driven young woman found herself excelling in a career that she wasn't passionate about. Ella took a break for a year of undoing to connect herself to the world and what was most important to her. In a smoky cafe in Bolivia, Ella met her future business partner. Together, they founded WealthWorks, a leading provider of coaching and consulting for emerging female family leaders, as well as women creating their own wealth as they navigate male-dominated industries. Our conversation with Ella inspired today's financial insight at the end of the podcast, where we discuss how to financially plan for the potential of an unexpected disability. Money Tales is brought to you by Asperian, a leading independent wealth management firm where we passionately believe in the importance of having money conversations. Now, on to our interview with Ella Chase Highland. Ella Chase Highland, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're with us. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to have a good time. We're excited about this conversation. To get it started, will you please tell us a little bit about your background and maybe focus on two or three pivotal situations, moments in your life that really make you who you are today? It's been a wild ride full of joy and heartbreak and healing as fully lived lives are. From an orientation perspective, I am a sixth generation inheritor from an old New York family that came over on the Mayflower. And so I have a very interesting juxtaposition between coming from pedigree, but then also my mother rejected high society and she refused, for those who understand the WASP culture, refused to be in the social registrar, refused to go to boarding school, refused to marry who might have been picked for her and married my father as an act of defiance and moved us out to the country. And so I was raised with like goats and chickens and having to be bused into town for etiquette school and ballroom dancing and those sorts of things. So that's the setup. I also am was a nationally ranked athlete. So I have this 
very competitive, like workhorse component to me. That's very different than I think what many people grow up with and certainly was different for and within my family and their expectations. What was your sport? Oh, downhill skiing, winter skiing. Yes. Oh, wow. Junior Olympic downhill ski racer. Back in the day, that's now decades ago. So that's an interesting concept for the old ego to handle. But I'm not sure I answered your question. Like, what are some pivotal money moments? One would be understanding based on the background that I just gave, the difference between the haves and the have-nots, being in the poor rural town, but also having access to a very privileged existence where many people, I don't think, run that spectrum. Often they sit in one of those two. The minute I made my own money and my own success that didn't have to depend on any familial expectations. And then I think finally the moment where I decided to leave corporate and go off on my own and create my own business setting aside the patriarchy and societal expectations to pursue something deeper. Tell us more about your growing up years. Where was this rural area where you were growing up and how did you learn about money when you were a child? I grew up in Western New York, very much under the tenets of hard work and discipline that came, I think from both sides, but again, my father who had a blue collar, like militant upbringing was quite the juxtaposition from my mother's bread experience. And so for me, it was around making sure, like we didn't get an allowance, like children were expected to do chores. There was no frivolousness. And then from a a money perspective, our family actually has branch in banking. So like I had a very different money experience than I think many I started building credit when I was 11. I got a credit card from the bank. I think that's not everyone's experience. My parents taught me, I think at like eight or seven or six about checks and writing checks and balancing your checkbook. And I I didn't, it wasn't until later that I didn't know that everyone else didn't also grow up with that, but very much in the sense of like, you don't spend what you don't have and let's be educated about what's available. And I have to say now, 25 plus years later, I'm really grateful that I started building credit at the ripe old age of 11 or 12. Ellen, that's actually really fascinating that you come from a family of means, yet you're taught very early on about the importance of managing your money and building credit. Would you tell us a little bit about where does that come from? Is it your parents together? Is it more your mom, more your dad? I would say it was my parents together which I'm really appreciative for. I have more memories around my father having the conversations with me, but that they very much worked in a family unit and that the bank and the branch ran through my mom's side. So there's no way that she wasn't. And I think it's not until I um, looked broader across my larger family and the community to realize that, oh, if you weren't in my nuclear family, you weren't necessarily getting the same messages at all. I can't say whether my cousins had that same experience to the level of rigidity that I now see as a benefit of having. And so is that just your parents felt it was important? Did they talk about it? Did you ever hear, where does it come from? Did they come together and say, this is really important for our children? This is how we're going to do it? Did they talk about their approach? Not overtly to me as a child. We didn't sit down and be like, okay, today is the time we're going to talk about money. and. I think it probably comes from the 
Great Depression era mindset of both sets of their parents. So whether it's the working class side of my father's family, which probably runs a little more on the scarcity side, or my mother's side, which was very much like I remember her mother still like writing down every single item at the grocery store before you could get a receipt, like what it costs when she died. I remember finding books and books and books of her. They counted everything and that could speak to the dynasty. And, you know, I couldn't project that far to say for sure. And Ella, tell us a little bit more about realizing that there are have and have nots in the world and where you fit on that spectrum. When did you start having that realization? It began for me first when I would ask people where they were going to summer as if it was a verb and realizing that people didn't have multiple houses and properties. I think it came also from going to public school in this very rural area and knowing that some of the kids, they got their lunch paid for. And I was like, wait a second, I want my lunch paid for. And it was like, no, that's not really how the system's set up. And then This didn't really occur till much later, but it was a bit distressing as a child that I was gifted from my family. We weren't into material items. We were very much raised into, well, first of all, there's tons of them passed down. I've got storage units full of stuff, but like I had to sit for my portrait to be painted and my friends got their school picture taken. I would receive a pearl or a piece of silver or a piece of china when My friends were getting Barbies and I was like, I don't want a pearl. I want a Barbie. Like, what are we doing? So sometimes it felt like I was the have not because they were having these cool things and I was like off here in this other world, not understanding what was happening at all. Did you have conversations with your parents or was it more an internal conversation with yourself observing that there was differences? It didn't seem explicit. The messages that were overt was, treat everyone the same, human dignity. It doesn't matter that you have or have not something. And since the house I grew up in was basically like a museum surrounded by my dead relatives and old things, it didn't ever feel like it was, that felt like it was the haves because the other people had new things which seemed like shiny and bright. And it wasn't until later that I was like, oh, oh, I see what's going on here. When did money start having meaning to you? I think it's access. So experiences, my family is really big into travel, that it's been an incredible use of money to go out and see how other people live in other cultures and understand that there's differences in a way that we can honor each other and it doesn't change you. And in fact, if it does, then something's amiss. When did you start traveling with your family? Well, so this gets bifurcated. I started racing, ski racing when I was five. So I started traveling for racing when I was like six or seven. But I wouldn't call that the travel that I'm speaking of. But it got me out of this small town where I don't even think my cousins who were like in the city who were doing more of the country club life didn't go see other parts of the world even the the state, even there's a very big difference between like Manhattan and Pulaski, New York. Like there's a lot, there's a lot of variation. So being able to start to see that there's different parts. And then my parents would put me on a plane and send me out to see my cousins in Montana or Hawaii, because we're such an old family that there's somebody anywhere. So it was like, go out, go see 
go do things. And a passport was a great thing that you should get as soon as possible. My mom grew up sailing in the Caribbean over holidays and things. So it's just part of what's in our blood. Five years racing? You were racing on snow skis at five? Yeah. My dad had me start skiing at two. I started racing at five. He was my ski coach. And this is a good seminal moment. When I was 11, he was in a skiing accident at a coaching clinic for me in Lake Placid and became paralyzed from the neck down. And so I realized two things in that, like 11 years old in this moment, which is money can't solve for everything. And life is really, really precious and fragile. So what are you going to do with it? And that has been a driving force in my life since that moment. And he's still alive, by the way. He's the longest living quadriplegic C3-4. Um, his accident was six weeks before Christopher Reeve's same injury, to give you a sense of orientation around that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, like, money became different because then it was, like, healthcare, keeping my father alive, not knowing what's going to happen there. And so a lot of the noise that I think affluent people get caught up in or people who are not in that situation get really restricted by is the fear and scarcity. And I feel really, really, really blessed that there was a mantra that I was raised with, which is it's only money. So if it's only money, then it's not something that we get super excited about. And it's not something you let hold you down. And I think that is very much my parents, as well as the stewardship and conservation of being from an old family that was meant to like take care of the community, et cetera. And that, that perspective, I'm really, really grateful for. Wow. That's a big lesson to learn as such a young person. Did you continue racing? I did. I'm also really grateful. It was never a choice to stop skiing. I'm so, so glad that my parents weren't like, that's it. Pull the cord. You can't let something bad that happens to you define who you are because then it owns you. And I think that could be true for money, but certainly for anything else. My dad's perspective was like, I could have, this is going to happen. And it could have happened to me while I was on my motorcycle with one of you kids behind me. I'm glad it happened when I was alone and everyone else is okay. So you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. You might as well go carpe that DM. What great leadership and no wonder you are as strong as you are. And so you continue skiing until when? When did you stop? Why did you stop? I blew my knees out like every good uh, ski race. That'll does. do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was 15, maybe. I think I had a 10 year career. So, Ella, tell us about post ski life. Where did you focus on what happened when you were done with school? Yes. I decided not to go to any of the schools that were legacy for my family. I wanted to go to a college where I could get, if I wasn't going to be skiing, which we knew that was over, then I was going to go to a school where you could get work experience while you're in school. So I chose a co-op school out of Boston. So you spend half the time in class, six months in school and six months like on jobs and in internships. And I really wanted to be able to check a few things off the list of what I didn't want to do. At this point, I was pretty aware that I had an IQ that would allow me and access that would allow me to get a lot of places. So it was really a decision around like what was going to be best for me versus what are my limited options. Just to juxtapose for a money conversation, there are I think two kids in my graduating class in my small rural town 
that left the state and many of them didn't even go to college as opposed to with the rest of my family or in many other places. It's an assumption that you go to school. It's just, what are you going to do? And it really, probably not at the time, I was probably still pretty righteous and ready to get out of there, but it's really quite a gift to be able to think that it's still not something that everyone gets access to. And I, I distinctly recall this conversation heading home from soccer practice. I was probably a junior. Whenever you take your SATs and this woman, uh, the mother of my friend was driving us home and I was talking about how stressed out I was about the SATs. And she said, my kid ain't going to go to any one of them schools that require no SATs. And I went home and I was like, oh, we are having different conversations here. So you choose a school that you're going to get work experience, which is really cool. Was that your first work experience? You know, I think of athletes and they're so busy, but you had jobs prior to that? My father had me working since the day I was born. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yes, it was, you need to make your own money if you would like to have money that you get to consider yours. And I remember for my grandmother pulling weed for a penny a weed, and that was so annoying. Uh, It did never seem worth it, but it was kind of indentured servitude. It was not for, but not not something you could say no to. And then I think, what is it, 15, you could get a work permit in New York? So basically when my skiing ended, it was like, okay, go do something. So I think I was, my first job was a, a busser at a restaurant. Well, it was a golf and sale club near our lake property. There is that. But I did work. And then in school, in college, actually, here's something I did. My first co-op, I wanted to go see a different part of the world. So the school was in Boston. I had liberal arts. I had three degrees, a very big overachieving perfectionist undoer here. We can unpack that, call my therapist. I decided I wanted to go to Seattle where some of my cousins lived. And there were no jobs for liberal artsy type people. Both my parents were teachers and special ed teachers. So one of my majors in college was American Sign Language. And that's a pretty hard internship to to find. And some of my other, I was like communications and human services. So all helping profession. And I ended up cold calling companies in Seattle, the ripe old age of 18, and convinced uh, one of them to hire me as an unpaid intern. And then I ended up, so you would work for 20 hours. I was a waitress. And then I had this 20 hour unpaid internship. And by the time I was a few months in, they had converted me to a paying job and then asked me to stay on full time and not go back to school and graduate. So I called my parents and they were like, no, you need to come back. So I was like, okay, cool. So Ellen, when you were going through school, you were doing all these different helping profession majors. Mm -hmm. What was incenting you? What was your goal and objective for post-college life? And how did money fit into that? I really struggled with this when I left school, the balance between you don't want to have or have to depend on a man for something. You want to save the world, want to help people, want to make an impact. And I had a conversation with my godfather, who is a big venture capitalist down in the city. And I was like, ah, I'm really struggling with this. And for right or wrong, what did he say? You can do three things. You can either help people and have the impact of being one-on-one with a person. Or you know what nonprofits people like even more? Writing really big checks. And that was the moment that I decided I would go to corporate 
and figure out a, a career that made a lot of money instead of being in a helping position where I might have to depend on someone else to support me to do that. So was it a depending concern over being reliant on someone or the impact that by going the corporate route, you'd have greater impact on those things you're passionate about? I'd like to think it's a combination. I will restate that knowing that the experience that I had growing up, that life is not guaranteed and who knows how much, well, I can tell you, it costs a lot of money to keep a quadriplegic alive and 24-hour care and all those things. So I just never wanted to be in a position, having the athlete background, I didn't want to have to ever be someone else's concern. And that could be from an energy perspective, but also from a solvency. Why wouldn't I provide for myself? I can clearly do it. Why would I let someone else take that away from me? As I'm talking about this, I do think there's definitely the undertones of seeing across, not even just my family, but families of privilege, the complacency that's rewarded for women in those positions to get married and have children was not something that I was going to see. There were plenty of people I was surrounded by who looked like they had it all from the outside and they were married and miserable or they had given away all of their self-worth. I know people who had to ask their husbands for permission to do things and were told like, no. And I was like, that is not going to be me. You got the wrong girl. (laughs) Oh, I'm just curious. Did that manifest in you because of who you are or just based on what you have mentioned so far about your mom, was she instilling some of these values and opening your eyes to different ways of being? I'm sure it's a combination. I give her a lot of grace because she was spending after my father's accident, a lot of time managing his existence and care. So I can't say I don't have like distinct memories of us like sitting down and even like talking about college or talking about it was more of a, I took it and ran with it. And whether it was implicit or explicit, it's like the the air were around. I was just around it all the time. And so because I wasn't in it all the time, I have the ability to see from both sides, from a poor and a rich side, what's happening. And she's an incredibly smart, capable, brilliant woman, my mother. And so it's completely possible we did have these conversations and I can't remember them. Ella, do you have siblings? Two brothers, one older, one younger. We certainly talk about like how our family unit was situated among our broader family context and among what is essentially like trauma and life-threatening diseases, illnesses, et cetera, in a way that's like, yeah, we're kind of different than a lot of people. But I wouldn't say it's down to the money messaging component. We all receive the same messages around be a good person, take care of yourself, take care of the community. There are no lazy days, very disciplined and diligent. And I think we've taken those to different levels and have a little fun. You know, life doesn't have to be hard all the time. I think that's a gift out of at least my father's accident is go do some living before you do some dying. So Ella, after you graduate college, you mentioned you get a corporate job. What is the corporate job? How'd you decide that was your track? Oh, it's so funny. Okay. So I looked at the market 
as every 21 year old does question mark and was like okay this was circa 2005 six and i was like well i'm not going to use my degrees for anything what do i think is going to be future proof and i looked around and i thought healthcare and technology and so i pursued opportunities in both of those markets i started in healthcare for a year or two and that like helped me do a little bit of the impact as well as being corporate and then my now ex-husband at the time we'd been dating for i think eight years and we weren't yet engaged or married he got a job in boston and so we moved back to boston and i once again just cold called companies because you're so good at that <laughs> you learned it well for all the women out there you don't get what you don't ask for and 100 percent is your fair share and don't let someone tell you no before you've asked them right on <laughs> mm -hmm, right on do the dang thing and i got recruited into a fortune 200 tech company where I went through um, their sales training program. And of course, I graduated first out of that. Of course, I got promoted faster than anyone else did. Anyway, that was then in 08. So it was really, really strange and interesting. I remember I was coming in and they were laying off a ton of people because of the financial crisis. and. I caught my boss in the hallway and they were like, oh yeah, we're getting rid of about 50 of your friends today, but don't worry, of course you're fine. You don't have to worry about it. And I just like walked out of the hallway. It was a very strange conversation as I'm watching people like cry and take their little boxes and go home. And I was like, ooh. And then simultaneously, as I was really excelling in my career, I was noticing that in my parents families friends the way the financial crisis affected them differently marriages blew up people came out of retirement like people hunkered down like in that sense it was very disruptive whereas it had been a non-issue for what i could remember looking for and i think that again reinforces the for me make sure you're dialed in and aware of what is happening on a money front, on a relationship front, on everything, because it can all be undone in an instant. And if 2020 hasn't been a great other lens of looking back and seeing, do you have your house in order metaphorically or otherwise? Let this be your wake up call if you haven't had it yet. I didn't do anything perfectly. I will never do anything perfectly. In fact, I fail often. And while it hurts, I think it's really helpful. It's a good thing. Yeah, it's unrealistic. If people say they didn't, then they're not being honest. Why did you change? It sounds like you changed careers, but you were having such great success. Yes, so I gave my soul to the corporate devil. I had, at this point, lived on an airplane about 25 days a month. I had international responsibility so i was flying all over the place i was more married to my job than i was to my husband and i lost i it was a thousand self betrayals tiny tiny little things where it was like oh you just work harder oh just do this one more thing like oh once you just get this commission oh once you get this next thing and i turned around and i was a shell of myself i remember i was crying on the bathroom floor of my house and i think it was the first time i had been there in 
six weeks and I was there for like 16 hours and you know the laundry wasn't done and all these things and I was like what is happening and I was just like how can this be it I have overachieved it everything the world had asked of me my family had asked of me society had asked of me and I was miserable completely miserable and from the outside it looked perfect picket fence great job awesome husband the dog like it was great and I was just like this this cannot be it and that began the great undoing project uh which took many years and many mentors therapists coaches for support to really get clear on I hadn't asked what do I actually want it was striving for other people's expectations of me and doing really really well at that and it completely took me out of integrity and so tell us where did you land <laughs> it's a really fun story so that was six seven years ago well it started in 2012 i finally got the courage to leave corporate which for me i knew i had to do i don't think that's anyone else's choice and it can be great for people i tried here's some things i tried I tried changing companies. I tried changing where I lived. I tried changing the roles and responsibilities that I had because I think as women too, we are socialized that once you commit to something, it's like a forever commitment. And then the company makes you feel like you owe them as if you're there for them. And I knew from the stories I've already told about building my own confidence in, in self-authority that that wasn't true. And so after I got divorced, I doubled down on work. I was like, well, clearly if I just work harder, I'll feel better. Uh, wrong. That for me, that was not true. And it wasn't until one of my friends who was under 40 was given three months to live that I finally hit eject. And I was like, I've got to go up there and advocate. Having spent my whole life navigating a healthcare system, I understood what they needed what they could ask for and they didn't have a lot of family and that was my first moment of coming back to myself standing up and honoring the values which i was raised with and believe in to be there for other people and then from there he's also still alive by the way it's unbelievable I, if you need miracles i've got a few for you yeah so he got this we got him qualified for this controversial surgery this is gonna I'm gonna narrow down the story for you and one of the things I had always wanted to do was travel the world. I never had the time to commit to it. And I didn't know how I would actually ever be able to do it. And this program came along that my best friend told me about. And she was like, you got to apply for this. And as soon as I thought, I was like, oh, I'm definitely getting into this program. It was a 12-month program. I'd never taken a week off in the 12 years I had been working. The workhorse mentality. Everybody thought I was completely nuts. It's called Remote Year. I think they're in their Series B or C. It's a very different program than it was, but I was in the third cohort, and they planned your housing, gave you workspace, and the travel in between the countries. And as a woman, I was like, I want to go all these places, but I'm not sure it's safe. And so it like covered all the buckets. So I quit my life. I quit my life. I quit my whole life. I had already quit my marriage. Then I quit corporate. And then I was like, yes, let's go do some living before we do some dying. And everyone thought, oh, you're so lucky you could do it. It took a boatload worth of courage to be able to walk away. I sold everything 
and I narrowed my life into two backpacks, basically, down from, I don't know, I had 5,000 square foot home and all these things. And I was like, none of this matters. Like, it really doesn't matter. And I was so scared. I was scared shitless. And I ended up, I was like, uh, maybe I'll make it a month or two. And I talked to my friends and they're like, there's no way you're making it to Asia. Asia was the last four months. I ended up meeting my now business partner, Michelle, in a smoky cafe in Bolivia, who is also on this worldwide sojourn. We talked and studied healing and wellness and understanding how other cultures orient around business and money. And she's comes from a second generation family business. And we ended up extending the trip for four months. We like never wanted to come home. And we created this brilliant little baby of ours called WealthWorks, wealth spelled as wellness, because we created a company where we don't believe money is the pinnacle of success. And if you're not well around it, then none of it matters. And we came back to the States and we have had this female leadership impact organization for four or five years now. And we are out teaching women how to be of impact, to grow their own confidence, to negotiate for themselves, to stand up within their family systems, to advocate for their needs. And we're hoping to change the world. Brava. That's it. That's all. That's it. Just changing the world. Okay. I think you're doing it already too. Got a lot going on, Miss Ella. It's really a gift. I just feel like the luckiest girl in the whole world. I love that Genesis story. It really feels like the stars aligned in hearts and souls. So it's really exciting and and it's an inspiration. I'd like to take the conversation in a bit of a turn. You've mentioned a lot about your family and cousins. And so because you come from a family that can trace itself back to the Mayflower. Tell us what family is like for you, your broader family. How many people are involved? How often do you get together? I, again, feel super, super fortunate. About 110 years ago, there was a contingent of my family that got together and said, we want to procure property under the onus that we gather our family together for fun and recreation and to propagate enjoyment in nature. And my family's very big into conservation. And so I grew up summering with my third, fourth, and fifth cousins, knowing all different branches and extensions. And it was never contentious because the bylaws were explicit about what we're here for. And so I would say there's hundreds upon hundreds of us. And for this particular contingent, we get together as much as people can. I mean, COVID's been a weird year, but growing up having big parties and meetings and reunions, and it's all very, very family oriented. Another thing I didn't realize that people didn't get to know their fourth and fifth cousins and from all over people travel in and it's so, so, so fun. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it comes with its own special little considerations for great aunt doogie was mad in the great depression at second cousin uncle joe so do we really need to fight about that 75 years later or can we like let it go (laughs) is that right there's a lot of family lore and grievances that still trickle there's an undertone and my mission within my generation and below is to just 
curiously look at whether this is a real thing or something that is just being dragged forward from over 100 years ago. Do you actually get together as the generation versus the entire group? Yes, but the generation spans from like 70 to 12. So it's hard to break it up. Yeah, we can get together around like, okay, all the 20 and 30 year olds, but that doesn't mean we're in the same generation based on the way genealogy works. But I've never wondered where I came from. We've got family genealogy books back to the 1400s in a way that I can see how a 23andMe or an Ancestry.com gives people a lot of grounding. I've never had those questions. I feel that I could drop in immediately and be with my family members because it just, it wasn't a question mark. One of the things that really I want to challenge about gender roles and part of the work that Michelle and I are up to is as I watch the inertia and the stagnation of other families as well over time, that, you know, a hundred years ago when a lot of the trust documents and things were set up, women couldn't own property. They couldn't, so they were all done under well-meaning support and that's not true anymore. So it's like, how do we change the system from the inside so that we are motivating people because everyone makes an impact. It's just whether it's going to be positive or negative. And how do we empower instead of disempower people to do that? And I just learned this three years ago. There was polio in my family back in the whenever polio was. And so they changed the doctrines to say instead of blood descendants, lineal descendants, because we started having adoption. So they were like pretty cutting edge there. And then there is, of course, homosexuality in the family. And so in the 60s, they changed the laws to partner and spouse. And so in a lot of ways, it's really cool to see the progression. And also, I think as a society, we still have a long way to go. But what behaviors are we rewarding and why? And this is what I think what you both are up to with money tales is so important because I can tell you that from an old money family that we spent hundreds of years not talking about it, that didn't make anything better. So I'm on a crusade to talk about money as much as possible. And it doesn't have to be dollars and cents. Let's have conversations. Let's have conversations at work. Let's have conversations like, how do you and your husband think about money? How do you split things up? I only know what I know. Let's get this going. I want to learn. I want to do better. I want to share what I know. Come on, team. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. I'm so excited to be here. So are you bringing these conversations into the family when hundreds of you are getting together and you're with your age range peers within the family? I would say that I'm more successful having these conversations outside of my family. I would say that there's very much stigma around specifically money because every family's chosen how they're going to set up when they tell their children and what they get and how it happens. And so it's like a violation to be talking about what that particular setup is. And for some people, it's like someone has to die in order for you to get some things. We don't want people, we want people to live long and prosper. So in that component, I would say there's not explicit money conversations and among Generations were doing a much better job, I think, provoking the generation above us and then also talking to each other. But there's definitely still the shut up and wait your turn. Don't ask any questions. Shut up and be grateful. That's very much a rhetoric that don't expect anything 
And then when you do, don't ask any questions. Mm, That can be hard to change quickly. Take some time. Yeah, it seems like my path was, okay, great. I'll go out and make my own money. (laughs) Screw you guys. I'm out of (laughs) here. How do you think about your personal relationship with money? Oh, the torrid mistress, money, me. I think now the piece that feels like it was hard was around the fiscal inequality with my now ex-husband and going into relationship. That part still has some barbs around it. Otherwise, I feel like money and I have a pretty good relationship. I was raised that it's fuel. And so you can use it for good or for evil, like go gambling or, you know, save and invest in a something that's socially responsible. So for me, don't let it change you one way or the other, because if you let it make you feel great when you're on the high, then it gets to beat you when you're on the low. So being sure that I continue to just, it's just money and it's a tool and it's fuel. So how do I want to use it? How do I want to save, share, spend it. It can be a bit egocentric to think I can control my legacy, but I want to carry forward. There's so many great things that were passed down to me from an ideology perspective. You get to use some things while you're here on this planet. How do I take those and make sure they're left better for the next generation, whether I personally know them or it's, for me, it's the global community at this point. Having the experience that I had to see cultures all around the world And the ones without money were the happiest. They didn't care. They had better connections with their community. They weren't dependent on something happening in order for them to feel successful. We've got this do something, have something, and then be something. And it's like, if you are the be, then the have doesn't matter. And then you can do what you want. We've got it all upside down. Can you just tell us a little more about your father's family and how they related with your mother's family or whether they related and how that was for you having parents with such distinctly different backgrounds? I don't think that there was any contention that I was ever aware of between the ideologies or how they were raised. I'm sure there are things that have come up, but I would not be able to speak to what those were. I can tell you from a perspective of like, My father's mother was a little spitfire, like fast and loose. She had fake paint on red nails and she'd just flick them off at times where my my mother's mother was very much like, what is happening here? (laughs) So (laughs) (laughs) Must have been fun to have both grandmothers over at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good variation between choices because otherwise, if I was just surrounded by the puritanical component of we show no emotion unless it's positive. Don't speak until spoken to as women and repress and hide anything about yourself and hope that some guy someday picks on you for something and then feel grateful. It's nice to have the balance to just be like, oh, you don't always have to be like that. Now, my dad's side's Irish Catholic, so that comes with its own level of intensity. I don't think I was either anyone was spared there, but it's been pretty great. Thank you for giving us those snapshots. Yeah. As our conversation comes to an end, what's one piece of wisdom that you want to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in our conversation? I'm not sure it hasn't come up yet, but talk about it. Talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Not talking about money gives your power away. And again, it doesn't have to be about the dollars and the cents, but it does have to be about bonuses and commissions, especially with women. There's so much further for us to go to be 
in equal-based conversations. Talk, 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 talk. Talk about what you don't know. Talk about what scares you. Talk about what you want to talk about. Could get into a whole other conversation about prenups and postnups. Not talking about money is not helping anybody. Talk to your friends. Talk to strangers. Sometimes it's easier. Just talk about it. Start young. That's perfect. That's a great segue to a final question we'd like to ask, Ella. What's your next money conversation going to be and who is it going to be with? Okay. So if it's at work with WealthWorks, we spend, it's a typical day, we're talking to ambitious women about their next money conversations all the time. At what cost? A lot of the women are struggling with like, if I take this job, then can I be a good mother? Or if I do this, then what's the impact of that? If it's more personally, Michelle and I are talking about how we want to set up retirement and investments for our company. So that would be our next internal conversation. That's fantastic. Sounds like two really important conversations to be had. Thank you so much. Ella Chase Highland, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. It's so exciting to hear your story, to hear all that you've learned in your life thus far and how you're really truly living your values and letting them pull you forward with courage and grace. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Ella. Sandy here with another personal finance insight. During our conversation with Ella Chase Highland, she talked about an accident her father had, leaving him permanently disabled. Experiencing a disability can materially thwart a person in their family's life, including their financial situation. In my experience, the risk of disability isn't on most people's radar screens, so we're going to discuss disabilities in today's insight. Let's start with some statistics. According to the World Bank, 15% of the world's population experience some form of disability, and the prevalence is higher for developing countries. The CDC reports that disabilities are especially common for women, where one in four of us experience a disability, and adults age 65 or older. Some disabilities are short-term, which is usually considered to be 1 to 12 months long, and includes health setbacks like injuries, digestive system disorders, issues with your joints, and pregnancy. Yes, pregnancy is considered a disability because the person is temporarily unable to work. Other disabilities can be much longer term and severe in nature. These include back injury, cancer, mental disorders, heart attacks, stroke. All these things can set a person back for years, decades, or even the rest of their life. In addition, suffering a disability can be financially debilitating, especially when the person has been working, and because of the disability, They aren't able to return to work for a long period of time or permanently. It's, of course, impossible to know what our future holds for us. That's why a solid long-term wealth plan should consider the risk of potential unwanted events unfolding, including the possibility of suffering a short-term or a long-term disability. This planning is especially important for people who haven't achieved financial independence yet. And we define financial independence to be when a person has accumulated enough financial resources to achieve all of their financial goals. If a person has achieved financial independence, they've likely accumulated enough wealth to withstand the financial consequences of a disability. However, disability planning can be especially important for people who are still building their wealth. And if a serious disability happened, it could be financially catastrophic. When planning for clients, our first step is to determine if they have enough resources to protect themselves in the event of disability. For short-term disabilities, we look to the client's ability to have cash and other liquid assets, which they could easily turn into cash, 
available to cover their expense needs, including those for addressing the disability for up to a year if they couldn't work. The exercise is similar when testing a client's ability to face a long-term disability, though we also pay close attention to the client's lifestyle costs and what they're comprised of. Chances are that if a person experiences a long-term disability, their healthcare-related expenses will go up, but other lifestyle expenses like the exotic scuba diving or mountain climbing expeditions might go down. If the client hasn't accumulated enough resources to pay for this themselves, we call this being able to self-insure, and they're working, we'll typically look to disability insurance as a solution to fill the gap. Buying the best disability coverage requires a lot of thought and consideration. Here are four important things to be aware of if you decide you need to purchase disability insurance to protect you and your family. First, the risk of disability increases as you age, and so does the cost of disability insurance. Second, While many employers offer short-term and long-term disability insurance, their offering may not best suit your needs. That said, if you decide to purchase disability insurance through your employer, make sure you can continue the coverage with you when you leave the job for the next one. This is important in case you face a health change that would make you ineligible to qualify for new disability insurance coverage later on. Third, be aware that disability insurance typically covers about 60% of income. This helps the insurer make sure that you're not incented to suffer a disability. Also, it usually pays until age 65, which is considered a normal retirement age. And fourth, disability policies may define occupation differently when determining if a disability has occurred. Some are very restrictive and will pay if you suffer a disability and can't perform any job, while others are more liberal and will pay if your disability prevents you from doing your current job functions. I think you're getting the feel that disability planning is trickier for people who aren't working. If they haven't already accumulated enough resources to protect against suffering a disability, they're often faced with scaling back expenses, tapping into the equity in their home or other assets, and are seeking various forms of government assistance. An important part of financial planning is to consider the various risks you face, including the possibility of a disability so that you can develop comfortable ways to protect against them. Doing so will help you achieve a comforting peace of mind. We hope you enjoyed today's financial insight. For more, you can listen to the end of other Money Tale podcast episodes or go to our blog, Fathom, at hesperian.com slash fathom. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammie Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.